1: Banking services and debit card provided by Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. Members FDIC. Spot me eligibility requirements and overdraft limits apply.
2: A man pushing a peddling cart through the streets of New York in 1848 would get involved in finance and create a unique financial instrument which played a role in the economic crisis of 2008. Fueled by the bonds that were sold for the Union War effort, the New York finance market was booming in the late 1860s, and no special license or Series 7 was required then. So, it shouldn't be so shocking that a man like Marcus Goldman, a German-Jewish immigrant, could go from pushing around a peddling cart to the world of high finance, where he created a unique financial instrument, commercial paper, promissory notes, From one company, who needed cash, agreeing to pay back, another company would buy them, who had extra cash to lend. Companies could lend each other money. All they had to pay was a small interest and a very small dealer's fee. By 1882, Goldman's firm, now called Goldman & Sachs, had $10 million of commercial paper sold. A giant was born, a giant that now has 30,000 U.S. employees. $53 $53 billion in revenues, $884 billion in assets. An alumni the company can boast of, Timothy Geithner, the current Treasury Secretary. His mentor, Rick Rubin, Treasury Secretary under President Clinton. Lawrence Summers, economic advisor to Bush and Clinton. John Corzine, the governor of New Jersey. The company would survive the Great Depression and the current one in good shape. The market that Marcus Goldman essentially built, a market of promises to pay, commercial paper, is now the lifeblood of the American corporate economy. But that lifeblood nearly stopped flowing in the fall of last year, and another Goldman alumni, Hank Paulson, would be tasked with restoring it. We will take a look at what happened and whether... The mission was indeed accomplished. But first, a little bit about commercial paper. We might think that businesses pay their obligations, most importantly salaries, out of the cash that they have. But that's only part of it. A company may have good sales in the month of April, but lousy ones in May. Yet, the outpays, the salaries, still must go out each month. No problem, because June is going to be a great sales month. But... How to look employees in the face and tell them, please wait a month to get paid. That's not how it happens. Or tell suppliers, can you give me materials for free now? I'd like to use them, and I know the money's coming later. Businesses borrow money and not just to buy huge things, but for their everyday operations. But from where? The bank is the logical place we think of when we think of borrowing. Bank loans are long-term. Rates are pretty high. And the banks want to know too much about what the money is being used for. Loans to pay operations would be an extremely high rate and would be questioned. Most businesses rely on cheaper, short-term commercial paper. Paper they must pay back in about nine months. It's very attractive for most businesses. The market rose from $140 billion in 1980 to $720 billion in nineteen ninety one to two point two trillion of loaned commercial paper in two thousand seven, which, as it turned out, would be the peak of this market with increasing concern over balance sheets, the commercial paper market dropped to one point six trillion in january o eight and then, in October of that of last year, as several large brokerage houses collapsed, these assets had no value, nothing. The market ended up with no liquidity. No one wanted to put dollars into the market to essentially to buy these promissory notes. Given the importance of commercial paper in in lubricating the economy, providing companies with funding, this was the equivalent of a meltdown, one that could force companies to just stop spending the kind of meltdown that this country has seen in the past, in 1819, 1837, 1857, 1873, 1893, 1907, and 1929. In August of 2009, a slight increase in commercial paper, now the market just over $1 trillion, is one of a couple signs that maybe things might be a little better. A slight increase in durable goods sales. Companies buy this type of big equipment when they feel good about the future. A stall in the rise, at least, of unemployment. And stock market increases. Seem to presage a little bit of recovery. Though how good we'll all feel is not clear. How much of the situation we're in now do we owe to the actions of Secretary Paulson and Benjamin Bernanke, Chief of the Federal Reserve Bank and the actions of the Obama administration. In 1907, newspaper reporters and onlookers in New York City followed the trip of J.P. Morgan, the old man, the newspapers called him, as he rode downtown to the New York Stock Exchange. One man, the newspapers heralded, would fix the crisis. When he arrived at the Stock Exchange, he was told by the Stock Exchange president that the exchange might have to close. What time do you close, Morgan asked him. Three o'clock, said the man. Morgan pointed at the president of the stock exchange, emphasizing every word. It must not close an hour before. Morgan then got a group of bank presidents of the big New York City banks together and told them all they had 10 minutes to offer up money from their banks that would need to total $25 million before their banks and themselves were ruined. Why did they need this money? The money that was needed was also a form of fast credit. Call money. Money used to buy stocks on margin. Like all credit, it came with risks and it inflated the market for stocks. On this day, with concerns about the financial stability of the major New York brokerage houses, after one, the Knickerbocker Trust Company, suffered a run on its assets, no one wanted to lend anyone call money. And in fact, the rate went from 5% in the morning to 100% of the afternoon. So no one bought stocks. They couldn't afford to borrow money to buy them. And prices dropped. Coal money incidentally would also have a big effect on the nineteen twenty nine crash in the ten minute meeting. J P. Morgan was successful. He raised about twenty four million dollars and notified the exchange of this new call money that was to be made available. Brokers now hopped over each other to get the big stocks. There was a rally in the market, and the newspapers reported it all. It was good news for the country and for the city. They relied on this financial business then as it does now for its superiority j p morgan had saved the market or so it seemed on the surface morgan of course had a large role but he was quietly helped by theodore roosevelt's administration 25 million in government dollars for liquidity was made available to back up morgan's efforts this helped to reassure the banks and so it wasn't morgan's sales pitch Alone, he came with some Treasury money. This was not the era where the government would telegraph what it was doing to help the market. So uh, there was no speech from the Treasury Secretary, Theodore Roosevelt, announcing this new money. It was handled quietly through Morgan and the banks. Depending on how you measure dollars going back in time, because there are multiple ways of doing it. $25 million then is either $500 million, it is at least that, using CPI costs. Or if you use the wage of an average worker and what it could buy at the time, the comparable amount to $25 million would be $2 billion today. Or if you use share of GDP, which is another way of measuring money. Because simply comparing $25 million now... To 25 million, then doesn't accurately measure things, or even comparing and just converting the dollars based on the prices of things in the consumer price index doesn't exactly work because though the equivalent dollars might be 25 million then to 500 million now using the CPI, 500 million net here in this economy that's this large, $14 trillion, doesn't mean as much as. $25 25 million did then. There were not a lot of people who had access to 25 million then. So, using the share of GDP method, it could be considered as much as $10 billion. Still not the size of some of the actions taken in 2008, but pretty big, especially for the time. And the federal government would be involved in another way. It would owe the House of Morgan a favor. And when Morgan's company, U.S. Steel, later would merge with another company who had gone. Uh, bankrupt, creating the largest steel conglomerate. Theodore Roosevelt, the trust buster, looked the other way. The U.S. steel deal would be investigated by Roosevelt's successor in office, William Howard Taft, but no criminal wrongdoing was ever found. It is also legendary that everything got better after Morgan's visit to the stock exchange. Now, the, the New York crisis and its solution uh, prevented a meltdown, to be sure. But then local banks began to fail all over the country as consumers heard the news that New York banks were failing and demanded their money out of the banks. The banks then needed to call on their reserve funds, which at the time, this is 1907, there is no Fed, were these major New York banks. So if a bank in Omaha needed money, they were getting it from their bank in New York. The call for all these reserve funds led to conservative lending practices and triggered a short recession. September twenty fourth, 2008, will probably go down as one of the more awkward meetings in American politics. And depending on how you view the world, it was either a unique bipartisan moment of statesmanship or a conspiracy at the highest levels of government. President Bush and Vice President Cheney met with Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi and the majority of leader of the Senate, Harry Reid. The Republicans met the Democrats, not entirely so strange considering one ran one branch of the government and the other party the other branch. But as this was in the middle of a presidential election, both candidates for president were also at the meeting, John McCain and Barack Obama. They were to discuss the recent bailout proposal, which all of these parties agreed was necessary. But since Speaker Pelosi didn't want to act alone without Republican votes for this controversial measure, the House and Senate Republicans were also called to the meeting. Their members, many of them, were balking at the size of the plan. And with the cachet of the soon-to-be-gone Bush White House diminishing, there's only one factor that could bring them to the table at this point, supporting their party's standard-bearer, John McCain. Presidential candidate is the leader of the party during the period of the election, as tradition. It was a group so big, it was hard to even, with a wide-angle lens, get everybody on camera. This was a unique situation that called for this unique meeting, the plunging of the Dow and the collapse of several major banks, Lehman Brothers, Bear Stearns, investment houses, a crisis that required cooperation. Yet, as in all political meetings, this was theater, and the audiences were many. John McCain and Barack Obama struggled to demonstrate their leadership in this tough time. Speaker Pelosi wished to show Democrats as fixing the broken system, perhaps to cast Republicans as the cause of the crisis and Democrats the solution. She would get into trouble for making a speech that hinted at that. President Bush and Vice President Cheney Cheney wanted to hold on to that part of their legacy which remained and not have the presidency end in a depression. And no one wanted to see further collapses or crashes. An awkward, tense meeting. But then, it is not every day that a major market crash happens in the midst, right smack in the middle of a presidential election. In fact, it's never. But we have presidential elections in America every four years, and crashes every once in a while in American history. As we said, 1819, 1837, 57, 93, 1907, 1929, 1987, 2008. So it was only a matter of time before the twain would meet and a crash would occur right in the middle of the campaigning. The resulting program had a horrible name, TARP, Troubled Assets, relief program. In the past, government thinkers would come up with sensible names. Medicare, the Great Society, the Fair Deal, Pay-As-You-Go, Lend-Lease, Head Start, Superfund, Cash for Clunkers. This was called TARP. It quickly became known by even a worse name, the Wall Street Bailout, which really endeared it to people at the time. Henry Paulson Bush's treasury secretary was hired two years prior and was one of the few Bush cabinet members who had not been in his circle for very long. He was from the street himself, having been the head of Goldman Sachs. Bush gave him some latitude. A conservative socially, and a hawk on foreign policy, a tax cutter, Bush didn't necessarily, as a president, show an interest in downsizing the government. The purchase of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac for... For $1.4 trillion, may have been the largest government undertaking to that time. The TAR plan involved $350 billion immediately and $350 a month later if Congress did not disapprove it, a negative option bill. This would enable Paulson to purchase the mortgage-backed bonds that had carved holes in the bank balance sheets, putting many banks on the verge of collapse and destroying the trust that is the basis of any economy. If you didn't know if the person you were dealing with had these bad assets or not, how could you lend them any money? The plan was attacked right, left, and sideways. A stunning lack of detail, Chris Dodd would say. Un-American Jim Bunny of Kentucky would say. Ron Paul and Dennis Kucinich both disapproved the
0: program. I'm Jane Polez This is Face Off, an eight part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous US China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a US admiral, even Yo Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face Off launches. April 9th.
2: Others saw the plan as perhaps not perfect, but better than doing nothing. Congress voted for the funds, in no small part due to the influence from party leadership and both 2008 candidates. There was a key problem with TARP as Paulson first proposed it, something that many financial people picked up on. You've got banks, and they have these toxic assets, these Mortgage-backed securities where the mortgages are not even being paid in many cases. Could be completely worthless. No market for them. So all anyone wants to do now is get cash. Now, the government comes along and says, I've got $700 billion. How do we know? It's been all over the news and there was a vote of Congress. So now the government comes with a bag full of money and says, let's make a deal. George Soros, Warren Buffett, both came out against it. Buffett suggests that how can you make a deal when you know the other side's got money, specifically for the purpose of paying for these assets? Buffett suggested that we let the market buy these toxic assets. And then the government could perhaps match the buying, but allow the market first to set up what a reasonable price is. Buffett offered to put in $10 billion of his own if the government would give him $90 billion to purchase the rest. Without real trades, Buffett argued, you've got no ideas what the other assets are worth and you could overpay. Let a few traders buy them, see what the prices are, and then jump in. But you have to have somebody who has skin in the game to establish a real market. Yet, this solution was not necessary. There was no need for Warren Buffett to become the new J.P. Morgan and save the world. Uh, Paulson himself already soured on his own plan. And when he got the TARP money, the bill was written loosely enough where he could change things around, and he did. Instead, Paulson decided to invest the TARP money directly in nine of the top banks buying preferred shares of stock, which is an asset now owned by the government, and succeeded in putting cash into the banks, which they could hopefully use to loan out to U.S. consumers and businesses. Socialism reared its head in the rhetorical debate that followed one cartoon showing Lenin, Marx, and then Bush. Just in 2008, the government had sent out stimulus checks, bailed out AIG, bought Fannie Mae and Freddie, and now this and now this the criticism highlights a contradiction america is not socialist not even in 2009 a 14 trillion dollar economy the federal budget is 3 trillion much of it social security payments tarp was 700 billion 0.7 trillion, about 5% of gdp a little less than what we spent on food and beverages in 2008 It's a high number, to be sure, but there's a larger economy that it fits into. Incomes vary widely. We don't have equality of income. Wealth varies. You can get whatever job you want. With some exceptions, you can pay people what you want. For most things, you can charge what you want, what you can get. It's not socialism, but it's not an inactive government either. Adding tarp stimulus, the Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac bailout, AIG, all federal spending, including Medicare and Social Security, you get like something like five trillion dollars, about twenty percent of the economy, not even a third Now add in what states spend on education and health care and maybe you get six trillion, not even half. That's all the significant spending. Government has a presence, that's to be sure. The larger economy in America is private. But if any government action in the markets is socialism, America has had a hidden hand for quite some time. Markets are not 100% free. The Federal Reserve has since 1914 exercised some control over the funds small banks have to lend. Banks do not decide on their own what to set rates at. Their instructions in the form of a market-based instruction, what the Fed lends what rate the Fed decides to lend to the bank at, banks are told, in effect, how much to lend for, at least the range of what rate they can charge. And recently, the federal government and the Reserve have done the following. Rescued the peso in 1994, arranged the help of the IMF, of which the U.S. is an extremely influential member, to prop up the Asian markets in 1997, Provide funds directly to Citibank in 1992. Arrange a Saudi loan. Didn't pay the money, but they arranged a loan with the Saudi government. The federal government bailed out savings and loans banks in 1989 at a cost of about half the TARP expense in today's dollar. The Fed freed up liquidity after the 9-11 attack. For free market, operating on the invisible hand theory, the hand is not always so invisible. It was a strange situation, one that pitted inside Washington against outside America. Mavericks in both parties against their leadership. And people against Wall Street. People against Congress. The bailout, as it was called, was not popular. But neither party could get political traction off it. So we saw something that was rare in American politics. The party system failed to represent the entire choice of opinion of the American people. Now, this was either done because it was the right thing, or somebody lost their seat at the table. But it was difficult for either party to get support, political traction off this bailout, because both significant party candidates had supported it. Before getting into TARP program and its possible impact, let's look at the Panic of 2008, contrasted and compared with other panics in history. The Panic of 2008 adds evidence to a simple theory. After times of freewheeling, speculative markets and times of easy credit, a recession occurs. It was true in one of the first market crashes, that of 1819. Credit and speculation for Western land had driven the crisis. True in 1837 bank expansion easy money 1857 again loans for western land and railroads 1873 railroad speculation and the collapse of a major railroad under led by jay cook plunged the market 07 was related to the expansion of the new york financial trust companies 29 the stock market, 2001, the dot-com bubble, and an 07 housing credit. It might just be simple. What goes up must come down. But the challenge is, and will be, predicting when the real up point has occurred. From 1873 to 1879, the U.S. government, under Ulysses S. Grant, took no action to stimulate the economy or prop up the market. Thus began the Long Depression, some six years. Economists differ on that time frame. Prices were low until 1879, but GDP was up for most of the 1870s. There was a severe depression, however, in 73 and 74. Easy credit was part of the problem. The securitization and overleveraging of home mortgage credit Matches credit expansion in other periods. Leading now to calls about doing something about credit card companies. In the 1830s, one Georgia writer celebrated the credit that had helped his native land. Without credit, the wilds of the South would not have been cultivated, he said. Credit bought our lands, improved our rivers, opened our canals, built our cities, cleared our fields funded our churches, erected our colleges and schools. But most did not share the Georgian writer's view. A Democrat wrote President Van Buren in the 1830s, urging him to please redeem us from the banks which have inundated our country. Anti-bank politics was good politics in the early part of the 19th century. But now that it's no longer this... Big stone building that doesn't lend you money anyway. This bank in the corner of a town somewhere. But it's a piece of plastic in your wallet. Do we have the same view of credit today? Is it a Faustian bargain? It's not real money. It increases prices. At least it sure did with house prices. Credit went way too far in 2000 to 2007. Yet we can have no doubt that credit also put people in homes and helped them to make improvements to their homes. And while many were over leveraging, others were not hard to argue that, but you can argue went too far during this decade. Want to learn how
1: you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Average price for a California home from 170000 to 550 during a decade probably went too far. But here's what is striking about the 2008 panic and recession versus other recessions and panics. is that the government was not passive. This was the most anticipated recession in some time. We almost felt it coming as a nation. The first stimulus package was in January 2008. And the year was spent with some dread in news coverage over the state of the economy and which brokerage house might close next until it finally happened in September. Contrast this with 1929, where, outside of tax reductions, there was no federal stimulative action for three years. Or 1873, where it lasted at least uh, three, perhaps seven years, with no government intervention. This time, the government was right on it. Yet the cost was two payments of $300 billion, 50 of which went to the auto industry, some of which went to prop up the commercial paper market. The national debt is somewhere near $14 It's far easier to see what didn't happen. Unlike in 1930, people did not lose their bank accounts. Generally, there were no bank runs outside of a few smaller banks. When big banks like Washington Mutual collapsed, other banks picked them up. The FDIC raised its insurance level to 250000 Yet the FDIC's budget has never been enough to cover the obligation of banks. It still is not. It's only psychological confidence that protects our banking system in the end. And that was held, iffy at times, but held. You could argue that the TARP, the perception that the government was going to bail out companies that were, quote, too big to fail, as ugly a notion as that is for so many. On the right, because they fear it's socialistic. On the left, because they fear it's helping big companies and helping the rich get richer at taxpayer expense. But that knowledge that the government was protecting certain entities that were too big to fail seemed to help to bolster overall confidence in banks. There's real pain in the economy, particularly in the area of housing foreclosures and unemployment. But there isn't the 10 million people roaming the suburbs that might have happened if we applied the ratio of population during the Great Depression to today. Jobs are lost, but unemployment, COBRA, retraining, and social security programs exist outside the challenges of the modern labor market. They are payments going into the economy, whether the economy is doing good or bad. And while these thin measures are not enough to stimulate the economy on their own, they do seem to reduce the pain. The various new stimulus programs, the $700 billion in stimulus money, have kept enough industries with something to pursue, perhaps, to maybe foresaw... Some decisions about layoffs. Jobless numbers rising from September 2008 to April 2009 have slowed. This is a better-feeling recession than many others, depending, of course, on where you live. The economists have developed meteorological-like efficiency. They can tell you exactly what will happen, but it's a pretty big guess. And then, when it happens, they track the storm's arrival and its progress we have watched this recession sail through, and now the most anticipated recovery is replacing the most anticipated recession. And some of the meltdown talk and nightmare scenario talk of October 08 is gone. Fear of the future has been lessened. However, there is a trade off. History's most managed recession may have a side effect. History's most managed recovery. At some point, steps will have to be taken that, in theory, will be anti-stimulative. Is Congress ever going to pass an anti-stimulus bill? But they might have to. The Federal Reserve will have to raise certain interest rates as well. Congress will have to cancel some stimulus programs for in-recovery, leading to cries of outrage in affected industries. But if one follows Keynesian school economics... We only tend to hear about one part, that Keynesian is some liberal who advocates the government putting money into the economy, phony money that's really not there. But there's a second element to Keynes' theory. You put money into the economy when times are bad, you pay for it when times are good. And that's where we seem to have the political problem. Following this model, Congress will have to raise taxes to cover the cost of the debt used to stimulate. Of course, an economy with more people working is better able to handle those type of payments than one that has high unemployment. The U.S. Congress is not well set up to go against popular opinion, nor it really is the office of the presidency, though it's insulated a little better by the Constitution with a four-year term. The Federal Reserve is designed to be a bit of a firewall politically. It has a political element. The chief of the Federal Reserve is appointed by the president. But it can make decisions that are unpopular. Ben Bernanke told Congress recently that he was willing to do unpopular things to help the economy. One congressman said to him back, good luck. Now it may sound like I'm defending the TARP uh, program. And to some extent, I do think some action was necessary and the TARP was as good a program, I tend to see the psychological factors as more important than the actual program, so long as the program wasn't destructive. But there is a bad side. Banks are not lending the tarp funds in big numbers. Take a look at Citibank, for instance. Citibank lent 15 billion of the 50 that it received, and it has planned to lend out 45 billion more of these tarp funds. But normally, with the leverage the bank gets you know that sounds like a lot of money some of it is promised loans for the future that haven't occurred yet and when you consider the leverage a bank gets that usually would allow it with that kind of money to lend out several hundred billion of that 50 billion it received from the government so this lending is somewhat minuscule 22 billion were used up so what happened to the tarp funds 22 billion were used to shore up Citibank's balance sheet. Banks seem to be saying, thanks for the cash, and we'll use it to shore up ourselves from collapse. Then we'll lend. When we feel better, thank you very much. Not before. We don't want to put ourselves in jeopardy. That wouldn't help your economy. But part of their shoring up is keeping high-paid New York City employees. And salaries there are not what Main Street likes to see. On the other hand, Citibank has also lent out over $300 billion in non-TARP funds. So if they didn't exist, if they had crashed as a bank, that $300 billion would not be in the economy right now. While they're not lending enough of the TARP funds, they're still doing lending. So to answer the question, when do you get the bailout that Wall Street got? That's the question everyone's asking. How can the government save Merrill Lynch but not save me? It's nearly impossible, I think, for most people to answer that question or make that assertion, I didn't get a bailout. How do you know? In most cases, cases, I think it would be fair to say that anyone making this statement is not aware of all the information they need to make that assertion. If you are unemployed, facing foreclosure, well, it's hard to say that Uncle Sam helped you out. There might be the slight comfort that TARP funds may have stopped a bank collapse cascade where accounts would have been, had to be continuously replenished by an FDIC that didn't have the money so that you'd go to the ATM and perhaps might be out of service and your funds could be zero. That disaster didn't happen. But we'll never get a receipt for that. We'll never know it. If you're working, it gets a little easier to answer the question, harder to make the assertion that you didn't get a bailout. Now, if your company got tarp or stimulus funds, well, then you know the answer to that. But if you're working for most U.S. corporations, you didn't get any money from the government. But if your company used commercial paper, then you may have been paid in a couple of your pay periods by Ben Bernanke and Hank Paulson. If your company doesn't use commercial paper, maybe its customers do. $50 billion of the TARP funds would, would be used to go directly to the auto industry. So if you worked in autos or a related industry, you benefited there. These are abstractions. They're going to be hard for most to understand, and most will go on thinking what they think and won't believe it. That's the trouble with the measuring the true effectiveness of, of effectiveness of a TARP program. The true measure of the TARP will be in the future. Do we see any windfall from these expenditures we made? We own some kind of shares in banks and auto companies. Does the U.S. government get something afterwards? Do banks feel any moral culpability to the U.S. since we got them on their feet again? Or is it just the fox guarding the henhouse, now with our taxpayer money? The history can't answer every question. We don't know if the TARP program was the precise program. But I would say this it's fairly clear that some kind of action from the government works better during a crisis. We've now reached the level where both parties, or the major elements of both parties, agree on that, at least. At least during the emergency period, the government must have some role. History is pretty clear when the government doesn't get involved. The panic can spread. It'd be disastrous for people. Not just the length of the recession, but the hurt that the crash does. Ruined lives. In the case of 57, 1857, a panic in which the government did, of course, nothing. Governments didn't do anything then. That is, It's agreed by most historians that the panic of 1857, the resulting market squeeze, the loss of assets, for Southerners, for instance, virtually led to the Civil War because it led to a need for Western expansion, which brought up all kinds of issues. The Great Depression certainly led to the rise of fascism in Europe. In the United States, we were saved by that, but there certainly were stirrings. when One looks at, say, Huey Long and what he was doing in Louisiana, and his attempt to bring his Share the Wealth program to the nation perhaps test the Democratic Party nomination in 1936 and try to win the presidency, establishing what he had in Louisiana, which was fairly close to a dictatorship, albeit a dictatorship that did bring school books and some better roads to a certain amount of people, but still demagoguery and, you know, could have been a very different United States. The point being, of course, that huge financial crises have not only economic consequences for people that can be dire, but political consequences that could be dire for the nation. TARP is going to be one of those programs. TARP, Ben Bernanke, Hank Paulson, President Bush, President Obama, and Timothy Geithner, and the whole crew going to be judged by that hardest of standards. What could have happened if they didn't act? I want to thank you for listening. The website is my history can beat up your dot com reminder about the Facebook site and go onto Facebook and run a search for my history can beat up your politics or go to the website and there's a link there to the Facebook. You can start a discussion you can comment thank uh I want to thank those that uh, have recently purchased the archive for My History can beat up your politics it's nine ninety five it's available. From the website, you get most of the podcasts that we've done since 2006. The history of the Federal Reserve, a podcast on who really were the founding fathers, podcast on representation. It's only available from the archive. Podcast on Brown versus the Board of Education. Podcast on the Second Amendment. Podcast on the Speaker of the House and the changing role of that office throughout history. Podcast on midterm elections. Those will be coming up again uh, shortly. Podcast on primaries and the history of political conventions. Podcast on presidential protection and the Secret Service. Podcast on the role of television in politics. Podcast on Abraham Lincoln and the various views of him that we had when that podcast was recorded actually in 2006. So some interesting topics in the archives. And I'm also very grateful for those of you who have commented on the program on, say, a place like Podcast Alley or, most importantly, the comment section of iTunes, Uh, rating the show, giving a comment. That helps. I also do look at the feedback, so it helps the show get better. And uh, it brings more attention to the show. Maybe if there's other people who are interested in history and politics, uh, they'll want to give a listen.
1: We all know how important it is to keep your eye on the money and not just your own.